Good morning. Welcome and uh, glad to be here today. Um, it's nice to see so many people. And if you're watching online and joining us online, welcome. Uh, before I get started, <clears throat> directly after the, the message, we're going to be taking communion together. So if you uh, want to take communion and you haven't grabbed one of these things from the, the backside out back there, um, please do so. Um, I'm, th I'm thankful that I get to talk today. Uh, we're continuing with our series that Kevin started last week. Last week, Kevin spoke on envy. Envy is evil. Um, and it's the first of our series called The Sickness Within. And today, I get to talk about pride. And last week, <clears throat> Kevin told me that this is going to be a great topic for you, Tom, because I know how much you struggle with pride. Um, and it's just a great thing to have such a loving uh, pastor, right, who really wants to help you through your sin struggles. So, but he was joking, uh, but it's true. I do battle with pride. It's probably the single most um, sin that I struggle with just, just the most. Um, and it's not necessarily a fun topic to talk about sin. Sin, when we have these kind of messages, they convict us, they challenge us, and that makes us feel uncomfortable. But while it might not be the most fun topic, it's necessary. It's vitally necessary for us to talk about sin, for us to understand and recognize the sin in our life. Because as Christ followers, we are commanded to die to sin, to put off sin, to put off the old self, right? We're a new creation. And if we don't talk about sin, if we don't recognize the sin in our life, we cannot overcome that sin. So I'm excited about this message series, and I hope by the end of it, you are too. But this is a tricky subject. The idea of pride is it's deceptive. It's deceitful. And the reason it's deceitful is because we live in a world that promotes pride, right? From, from the moment we're born, you have proud parents. From the moment we go to school, get good grades, be proud of your grades. Be proud of your, your abilities. Be proud of your accomplishments. Even be proud of what you have, what, you've, what your possessions are, including your family. And, and yet, as the world teaches us that pride is normal and it's good, the Bible teaches us differently. <clears throat> the Bible teaches us that God is against pride. He opposes pride. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. As Christ followers, even as Christ followers, when we allow pride to dictate how we live, the choices that we make, how we treat one another, what we think of ourselves, in those moments, God is against us. He opposes us. While we are still saved we're in enmity with God over our pride. And God will do whatever he deems necessary to shake the pride right out of us. I love this quote by C.H. Spurgeon. 
he says, no matter how dear you are to God, if pride is harbored in your spirit, he will whip it out of you. They that go up in their own estimation must come down again by his discipline. And that's true. God is opposed to the pride that we have in us. But pride, again, is deceitful. It's deceptive. The definition of pride is even deceptive. It sounds innocuous. It says a feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated, or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. That's the definition of pride. And so it seems like it's just a normal, everyday thing, and it is hardly ever associated with sin or wrongdoing. Obviously, if you know someone who is boastful and arrogant, it's easy for us to see, well, that's wrong, that's sinful. But just normal pride, I'm proud of my kids, I'm proud of this accomplishment. It doesn't feel wrong, and yet the Bible teaches us that it is wrong. So while it has the appearance of a harmful character quality, when we seek and look to find our satisfaction, our fulfillment in the created rather than the creator, we're sinning and we're falling into a trap. Psalm 37, four says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Now that is not saying that we'll get anything in the world that we want. What it's saying rather is when we seek God, when we delight in God, he gives us himself. Because when we delight in God, we have affections for the things of God and, our, and the things, uh, our affections are for God himself. And he doesn't withhold that from us because that's exactly why we're created. So finding deep satisfaction or pleasure in anything outside of God we're falling into the trap that Satan set. Satan set this trap, used this ploy since the beginning of time, and he continues to do that. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction, an arrogant spirit before the fall. That's a well-known verse, but it can be used for the original fall, the original fall of man. I would argue that pride is paramount in Satan's deceit, deception of Adam and Eve, and therefore they sinned. He played on their pride. It's the primary cause of the fall of man. Genesis 3, 1 through 5, says this, and this is talking about the fall of man. It says, now the serpent was most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it. She added the touch it, by the way, again, thinking she could just change God's word. There's pride there. Do not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said of the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan, who was cast out of heaven because of his pride, because he believed he should be equal to God and worshiped as God, 
He's now causing Adam and Eve to question the goodness of God. He's, he's causing them to question whether God really knows what's best for them or do they know what's best for them. And he certainly is causing them to think that they can be like God, be independent of God. That's all playing upon their pride. And of course, we know Adam and Eve fall. They sin. And because they sinned, every person ever born of woman is a sinner and is born into sin. And that's because of pride, primarily. Now, I battle with my pride, as I already confessed. I battle with it because I know that it is an attribute in me that's against God. Not only is God opposed to our pride, but our pride doesn't want anything to do with God. Our pride does not want to acknowledge God, doesn't want to worship God. Our pride doesn't want to rely on God, wants to be completely independent of God. And our pride certainly doesn't revere God, doesn't desire to please God. It doesn't fear God. And those are the three areas I'd kind of like us to focus on and to think about and to analyze in our own life, where do we see our pride affect these areas? We'll start with worship. So pride deceives me by correct, corrupting my view of myself. Pride will cause me to worship myself instead of God. And just in a couple ways. Pride will cause us to worship ourselves through the gifts and abilities that we have. Every one of us have something that we're good at, right? Some of us more than others, but we have things that we're good, of, good at. And again, we're, we're taught at an early age, be proud of what you can do. Be, be proud of what you're good at. Be proud of what you can accomplish through your own ability. We're taught that. And it seems normal and right. But scripture t teaches us differently. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, he says, based on the gifts each one of you has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. The varied grace of God is what we receive or through we receive all of our gifts and all of our abilities. We don't manifest those in and of ourselves, And even the ability to increase our abilities and to get better at it, to practice, that's not from us either. That is the grace of God that allows that. And I love the word or the phrase good manager. Some translations will use the term steward, which I love that term as well. But what that says is that these gifts and abilities don't belong to us. They're not ours. We're not the owners of them. God is the owner, and we're to be a good steward of them. And in that, there's no room for pride, right? If it, if it belongs to God and he gifts them to us, we need to acknowledge God, not ourselves for those. So gifts and abilities, but also what we own, our possessions, right? It's very easy to become proud of your job, of your car, your house. How about family? Family is a very easy and seemingly innocent possession to be proud of, right? I th I'm sorry that I always have to mention Asa, my grandson, in every message I give, but 
But I, I see that kid do so many things, and, each, and I, I feel this, this pride well up, as if I have anything at all to do with it. Now, Asa is God's. He belongs to God, and everything he learns how to do comes from God. I have no reason to be proud. But our possessions are things that we will be tripped up on and easily become proud of. And Psalm 50, 10 through 12 says this. It says, For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Everything. There's nothing you can think of or dream of that does not belong to God. And so we acknowledge God for that. We don't take pride in it. So it will cause us to worship ourselves. It will also give us a false inflated value of ourselves. Pride will. Everybody's heard the term holier than thou, right? Self-righteousness. Looking down on other people as you compare yourself to them. They're worse sinners than I am. They're not as well off. They're not as in tuned or connected to God as I am. And Jesus hated that, and he addressed it in Luke 18, 9 through 14. I wish I had the verses up here for you guys to follow along, but uh, my fault. I apologize for that. But here's Jesus, and it says, he, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I could end the sermon right there. Jesus has explained the evil of pride and the greatness, justification of humility. But since I still have 20 minutes, I'm going to continue. Righteousness leads to a critical attitude, uh, a judgmental heart, as we look at other people and compare them to ourselves. And that greatly, devastatingly impacts our ability to have compassion for one another, compassion for the marginalized. And this is exactly what Jesus says will define or characterize a Christ follower. What you do for the least of these, he says, you do for me. Right? And for those who, who didn't help the widow, the poor, the orphan, the ones who are in jail, the hungry, Jesus said, depart from me. I don't know you. That's a scary realization of why we should be having compassion. If we are true Christ followers, we should be having compassion. But we can't have compassion if we allow pride to dictate and rule our mind and our hearts. So pride causes us to worship ourselves. It causes us to inflate our own value. And to a greater and more important extent, pride diminishes my view of God's worth. God is the only 
person worthy of worship. No one else. No one outside of God. No creation worthy of worship, but only God. First Chronicles 29.11 says this. It says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. He owns everything. He created all things. He is the great one and he is the only one worthy to be worshiped. But not just that. Worshiping God is for our good. It's for our best. It's what we're created to do. And if we fail to worship God, we're missing out on a great blessing. God, worshiping God, reminds us just how big God is, how great God is, how loving God is. And Paul writes about this in Romans 4, verses 20 through 21. He's describing Abraham's faith while Abraham waited on the promises of the Lord. It says this, it says, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promises, but was strengthened in his faith as he gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what he was promised, he was able to perform. Abraham, he didn't see most of the promises God made to him. He didn't live to see them. And yet he worshiped God in spite of that. In spite of his circumstances, he worshiped God. And the Bible says it increased his faith. It made him stronger in his faith. And that is one of the great benefits of, for us if we worship God as we should worship him. So that's worship. Let's talk about dependence on God. Or as pride would have us, be independent of God. Pride promotes a spirit of self-reliance. And again, this is applauded by the world. This is taught to us by the world. We're, we're taught to uh, take care of ourselves, pull up our bootstraps, and whatever it takes, do it. Get it done. You affect your circumstances and make them better. Don't rely on other people. Certainly not. It's seen as weakness. And yet, if we read in Acts as the church, the first church began to develop, it is chock full of people reaching out to one another, relying on one another, and allowing themselves to be taken care of by other people. There's a fine line between taking responsibility for our own life, which we are supposed to take responsibility. But to say that it's wrong to share and depend on others and let them depend on you, that's not correct. It's not biblical. And it's certainly what our pride, if we allow it, will have us act out on. No, we're to depend on God and we're to depend on one another. But also, it doesn't just promote a spirit of self-reliance. It promotes a resistance to authority. And we see this in our culture today, right? Resisting authority, not complying with police, um, resisting the government, the civil government that is placed in over us. And the Bible teaches us to respect and obey authority, unless at such time as it causes us to disobey God. But the spirit of pride that the world promotes would have us resist and resist authority and to a worse way and a worse level to resist the authority of God. 
We're not created to resist God's authority, and we're certainly not created to be independent of God. And there's two reasons. It's in our best, well, there's more than two reasons. I'm just going to list two. There's two reasons why it's in our best interest to depend on God. First, it will increase the intimacy that we have with God. As we reach out to God and he responds, which is what we're promised in James 4.8, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That creates in us an increase in our intimacy with God. And intimacy with God generates an increase in faith, increase in trusting him, and a decrease in relying or giving in to pride. It's why we're created. So it increases our intimacy. As it increases our intimacy, it decreases our anxiety and our worried. We live in a, in a world, a fallen world, that causes, stirs up in us so much anxiety. I don't know anyone who, at some level, does not deal with or struggle with anxiety. And some people are wrought with it, disabled from anxiety. It decreases our worry and our anxiety, though, when we depend on God and not ourselves. Paul writes in Philippians 4, this is verse 6 through 7. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses every thought, will guard your heart and mind in Jesus Christ. And the key phrase there is the peace of God. Again, living in a world where we're told, encouraged to depend on yourself, to depend on your own strength, results in anxiety and worry. And you cannot, we cannot overcome anxiety on our own. It will always be there. It may lower because of our circumstances, when our circumstances change. But in difficult times, we will always worry and we will always have anxiety. The only hope for overcoming that is the peace of God. And we only have that peace as we rely entirely, completely on God. And that's his promise. Just like as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. As we rely on him, he cares for us. He comforts us. And he carries us through the circumstances, whether he changes them or not. He always has a plan for everything we go through. But his plan for why we're created is to depend upon him and not ourselves. So that's worship. That is dependence. The last one is fear. Pride promotes fear and anxiety. Promotes it. Causes it. The more we rely on ourselves the more we allow pride to dictate the way we think, we become fearful. A couple ways that that happens. A couple ways that it's played out in my life. We will become overly concerned with what other people think. As we lean into pride or become prideful, we'll worry about what other people think of us. Here's a quote by A.W. Tozer in relation to the burden of pride and what it does to us. He says this, he says, think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. 
as long as you set yourself up as a little God to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer an affront to your idol. Such a burden as this is not necessary to bear. Jesus calls, on, Jesus calls us to his rest, and meekness is his method. The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. I love that phrase. The esteem of the world, it's not worth the effort. It's not worth the burden. It is a great burden to try to hold on to our pride, to try to make everybody happy, to please everyone. It's an impossible burden that Jesus calls us to set aside and lay down. So overly concerned with what people think of us and trying to please them. But also, it comes with it a fear of failure, right? Look, we're created, we're all sinners, we're all imperfect, and all of us will fail, have failed, will continue to fail in some aspect. Why do we fear it? We fear it because of our pride. Pride causes an inordinate fear of failure. And the way that's played out in my life to the greatest impact is public speaking. From a young age as a kid, I feared speaking in public. Um, all the way up into my adult life, to have the opportunity, the opportunity is not the right word, to be made to stand in front of people and speak uh, caused so much anxiety in me, uh, I would liken it to a panic attack. That's how I felt about speaking. But years ago, I made a vow to God, careful when you make a vow to God. <laughs> when we vow or make a promise to God about anything, he's going to hold us to it. I made a vow to God, God, if you teach me your word, help me to understand it and know it. I'll teach others. I'll teach it in whatever venue or whatever opportunity you give me to teach it. I prayed that, and I am not kidding. Three, four minutes later, I get an email from um, Melinda Reed. She used to be the, spiritual, uh, the director of spiritual growth here at, at uh, High Point. And three minutes after I say that prayer, she sends me an email saying, hey, Tom, we're having this um, service called Secret Church. And we think you would be great to, to teach at it. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Um, no, that's not my gift. Um, I, but my response was, I'll pray about it. I had just prayed about it. I didn't need to pray about it, but that was my response. God worked on my heart. Danielle twisted my arm, my wife, um, and I said, yes. I decided in that moment that no matter how scared I was, fearful of it, I was going to say yes to God and no to fear. And that's what we're called to do. We're not to give in to the fear that comes with pride. We're to fear in a healthy way God. So there is healthy fear. There is healthy respect and reverence for God, which pride causes a stumbling block to. But pride will distort my fear of God. It'll fool me. And there's a warning, a scripture that warns about fearing God, and I'm going to read a scripture that is an encouragement to why we should fear God. First, the warning. This is Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear those who kill the body, 
but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I think that's self-explanatory. We are to fear God more than man. We're to obey God more than man. It should matter more to us what God thinks and what God tells us than what the world says. But how about an encouragement? The Bible teaches us that God watches over those who fear him. God protects us. That's a promise. Psalm 33, 18 through 19 says this. It says, Now the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. And I read a a kind of a, a picture of what this looks like to be under the watchful eye of God. It's kind of like being in the center or the eye of a hurricane. Think about it. When you're in the eye of a hurricane, all around you is chaos, destruction, right? But in the eye, in the center, is calm, quiet, peace. That's what it's like to be under the watchful eye of God as we fear him as he calls us to. So that's worship, dependence, and fear and the negative impact that pride has on it compared to how we're supposed to be with God. So how do we solve it? How do we solve the problem of pride? You've probably guessed already based on the scripture that I've already read and what I've said. It's humility. It's a humble heart. That's how we overcome the problem of pride. And Jesus is the perfect example of how we can do this. I'm just going to state three ways, practically speaking, all of us can overcome the pride and, frankly, any kind of sin that we struggle with. A humble heart will sacrifice like Jesus, will serve like Jesus, and will submit to the will of God like Jesus. Let's look at how Jesus did it. Again, because he's our perfect example. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says this. It says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others, like the first church did. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Jesus first sacrificed by leaving the perfection and the fellowship that he had with God in heaven. He left it. He came to earth. All of his time on earth was sacrifice, right? Foxes have a hole. Jesus had nowhere to lay his rest. It was full of hardship and sacrifice. And then the ultimate sacrifice to die for us, for our sins, so that we could be reconciled back to him for all of eternity. Jesus is the perfect picture of what it means to sacrifice. And sacrifice as we do it, as Jesus did it, will eliminate and put to death the pride that's in us. They can't exist together. Service, let's talk about service. Jesus modeled servanthood during his 
time on heaven, certainly during his ministry, his three-year ministry on earth. And this is what he says about himself in Mark 10, 45. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And it's not just that he served, it's the way Jesus served, right? Jesus didn't try to draw attention or gain recognition for his service, for healing people, for teaching people. He wasn't looking for recognition. He certainly got it because people couldn't shut up about what Jesus did for them, which is a great thing. But his heart was to serve because he loved, not because he was looking for any type of recognition. There's plenty of people here who serve. And we should check our hearts that when we serve and if we serve, and perhaps we're not recognized for that service, do we feel slighted by that? Does that make us feel badly, like we're, we're, we're losing out on something? Because that is evidence that there's some pride cropping up, even in obeying God and doing what we're called to do, which is to serve. We're to serve like God. We're to ser serve like Jesus. We're to serve in secret. Matthew 6, 3 through 4 says this. It says, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward. That's how we're to serve, in secret, with a heart of love, with a heart that wants to please God and not man. Lastly, submission. To submit, which is not an easy thing to do and it is impossible to do through pride. Jesus put God's will over his own will. God the Father's will over God the Son's will all the time, every time on earth. He humbly sought God's will in everything, including his death, right? The picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. We read in Luke twenty-two forty-two. Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, in his greatest anguish on earth, as he's facing death within hours, pain and death, but already experiencing being ripped apart from the fellowship that he had with God, already starting as the weight, the burden, the sins of the world are being placed on him. He doesn't run. He doesn't give in to his own temptation from a human side, right? Might have been tempted to run, save himself, self-preservation. It's a natural response for humans. He doesn't do that. He puts aside his own will and he trusts in the Father's will. And that is something that you and I can practice each and every day. Trusting and putting aside our own will, surrendering to the will of God, regardless of our circumstances or what we're going to face. That's what we're called to. And that destroys, puts an end and to death the pride that we have in our life. So homework. The homework is just as much fun as the message. If you're married, ask your spouse to point out where in your life they see pride so that you can take the steps necessary to put it Put an end to it. If you're single, just find someone that you trust. Someone you believe knows you well and ask them the same question. And when that's pointed out to you, receive it 
humbly, <laughs> right? Let's not push back and argue, but let's receive it humbly as we would admonishment from God. Secondly, battle your pride through service, through sacrifice, and through submitting to God's will for your own life. And together, all of us can encourage one another to overcome the pride that corrupts and destroys. Let's pray. Father, just thank you. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for your mercy on us, God. That even while we try to do things in our own strength, even though we fall to worshiping ourselves, to desiring the things of the world instead of you, trying to find fulfillment and stuff in our abilities, God. Help us, God, with our pride. Help us to overcome our pride. Help us to live out the example Jesus gave us, that Jesus showed us. And God, may our hearts be uh, less and less critical and judgmental of one another. Help us to compare ourselves to the sun and not to others around us. God, forgive us for the sins that we commit and help us to put them to death. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're going to take communion now um, together. And um, if you have one of these, if you haven't gotten, just grab it real quick. Um, communion is for Christ followers and only Christ followers. If you have not taken that step of faith to commit your life to Jesus, this isn't for you. And it, and it shouldn't be taken. But we should do this with humility. Now, the way these things open if is the very top part opens and you can pull out the, the wafer. And we'll take this together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread he gave thanks, he broke it, and said, do this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. And you open up the next level for the juice. This is the blood of Christ. In the same way, he also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son leaving what he had with you in heaven, coming to earth, living a perfect life, God, and willingly submitting to your will and dying, dying for our sins so that we can have eternity with you, so we can be fully reconciled to you, God. Thank you for that. Help us to always remember 
and always be thankful for this gift. In your son's name, amen.